Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Get 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash appleinsider. And Ladder Life Insurance. Learn more at ladderlife.com slash appleinsider. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and joining me this week, Wes Hilliard, man. How's it going? Pretty good. I might be sounding a little different today. That's right. You got that new microphone right there. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting and picking up every noise in my house, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yes, the, the joys of recording. If anyone And if any of our listeners podcast or have tried podcasting, getting a good environment for recording and not having a lot of background noise, especially in the stay-at-home era, it is definitely a challenge. Uh, for our listeners who are probably wondering, why don't you tell them what microphone you are using now? Well, it's small step up. I went from the... Um, Audio-Technica, I think 2005 to the Audio-Technica 2100X, which is uh, basically they upgraded some of the capabilities inside the microphone, added USB-C instead of whatever it was before, micro B or whatever nonsense. Yeah, the weird connectors. All I know is it was the connector from the PlayStation 3 controller. That's how I keep track. (laughs) This one definitely seems a little sleeker. Still no real configurability on an iPad. I just plug and play and let's go, you know, no mute button or anything, but I think it sounds uh, significantly better and we'll see how the recording goes, but I've locked my cat in a faraway room and um, I think we're going to be all right for interruptions. So (laughs) cool. Well, we wanted to hit these rumors. This was on Friday of last week, so it just didn't make the recording that I had with William in the last episode, but Mark Gurman from Bloomberg and Ming-Chi Kuo, they had some rumors talking about the 2021 line of Apple laptops and Apple Silicon devices that are going to be coming this year. We've heard about some of these before. Obviously, a 14-inch and a 16-inch Apple Silicon MacBook. We've heard those rumors before. New display technology. Again, that's familiar. One of the things that I thought was interesting in the rumors was that MagSafe might return to the laptop line. So as you know, it's been USB-C since 2016, and now we have MagSafe on the iPhone. And now the rumors are saying maybe they'll bring MagSafe back to the laptop line. I have to say, while I think I would like MagSafe now, I think I also am so into the USB-C and Thunderbolt world that I kind of don't care as much anymore, but I, I feel like MagSafe is probably not coming back to the MacBook line. MagSafe is interesting here because Apple killed it and then returned it with this giant hockey puck that you put on the back of your phone. Right. I'm just struggling to connect the dots here. Are we going to use the MagSafe charger that we have for the iPhone and slap it on the Apple logo on the on the MacBooks? I mean, are we going to just <laughs> return to the old charger and have a little slot in the side? And then uh, people have brought up the question of, well, now I've gotten used to being able to charge from either side of my MacBook. Right Now the MagSafe charger will only be on one side. How do I make this decision? And then we're just going to give up 100 watt charging on the 16 inch MacBook Pro. That's crazy. Like MagSafe can deliver some good power, but it's never going to get 100 watts. It just feels like we're bringing something back for the sake of having it. And I'd I don't know. The battery life on these Macs are so long now. The necessity of having to have a continuous cable plugged into your Mac is just less and less these days. So what's the point of even having a cable like that on a MacBook? Yeah, that's a good point. And and I feel like I just don't think it's going to come. I mean, it's not going to be a puck style charger. It would have to be some kind of small port on the side. There could be, you know, I've seen little accessories in the past where... 
third-party manufacturers kind of make this USB-C magnet connector where you can actually leave the connector in one of the USB-C ports on your MacBook. And then you use like this cable that they give you and it kind of gives you the MagSafe charging through this like third-party connector. I've never done it because I kind of don't want to mess with the power delivery on my laptops and, you know, using a, some third-party accessory with a magnet that, you know, it's not really Apple certified. So I've never done it, but I've seen those kind of, you know, little janky things to use. And I just, I've not had a desire for it. You know, the USB-C, I'm having to plug USB-C stuff into my MacBook anyway. And it's like, well, you know, I'm good charging with it now. And I just use a bunch of USB-C cables to charge my iPad and my MacBook. So there it is. That's just me. It's just very inefficient charging. The surface area on a magnet like that is going to be very small. I mean, we're able to get 15 watts across to the iPhone. I don't know the specs of the old MagSafe chargers. I'm sure they were just enough to get battery into the Macs. I mean, you could work from the Mac and have it plugged into your MagSafe charger. I've never heard of any issues, but... It's just nowadays the batteries are bigger. They can charge much faster. And we have all, all the stuff that you mentioned, like Thunderbolt, 100, 100 watt charging and such. And it just feels like MagSafe would be a step backwards. Yeah. I mean, unless Apple's doing the thing that we know that could be coming, like with the iPhone 13 with uh, no ports and uh, getting data across MagSafe as well, unless they got some magic trick there where they're like, oh, it's Thunderbolt speeds and you know massive charging speeds and data transfer all across this magnetic connection. Unless we see something like that, I very seriously doubt we'll see just a dumb charging port with a magnet in it. Yeah. One of the other rumors is that Apple's going to be making a smaller size Mac Pro. We saw this rumor before, and this is saying it'll be coming in 2021. And so this is basically a smaller version of the Mac Pro, like less than half size of the Intel Mac Pro that we have now, but powered with Apple Silicon. And, you know, the immediate question would be, why? Like, why would Apple make a smaller version of the Mac Pro just to put the Apple Silicon in it? And I can think of a couple... Obviously, the Intel chips and all the compatibility with like graphics cards and stuff, those pro Mac Pro users probably still want that compatibility and maybe even still want like those Intel powered chips for now, especially if their software is dependent on it. So I could see maybe starting out with a smaller Mac Pro, but also it would be a good device in between the Mac Mini and the Mac Pro for someone who wants a desktop machine where you can have a separate display and separate mouse and keyboard, but you don't have to go all the way up to the Mac Pro and you get something a little more powerful than the Mac Mini. I, in my new desk setup, I've been enjoying the docking in the bridge vertical dock and using my MacBook Pro as like a desktop machine at the desk and then laptop elsewhere. But I could definitely see someone wanting an Apple Silicon Mac that's more powerful than a Mac Mini, uh, but they don't have need for the bigger Mac Pro, you know, maybe something in that $2,500 to $3,000 range for a, a Apple Silicon smaller Mac Pro. I would wonder if it's still going to be expandable. You know, we don't have any external GPUs on the M1 MacBooks right now, and we don't know how it's going to play with other GPUs or what the discrete GPU situation is going to be in future Apple Silicon chips. So I'd be curious about that, if there would actually be expandable RAM, which that doesn't seem likely because the RAM is built into the M1 chips now also. So a lot of questions there, but definitely curious. And I think there would be a spot for that in the lineup. The interesting thing here is, is we have to think about Apple Silicon. I mean, the Mac mini has the M1 processor in it. And there's, it's nowhere near thermal limits right now. Whatever they're going to put in this smaller Mac Pro could probably still run just fine in a Mac mini chassis. So I'm, I'm assuming that we're looking at a modular system mm -hmm. because I think the entire 
thing behind Mac Pro was modular, right? You know, expandability. And we're not going to get modular in the sense of the Intel Mac Pro just because this is Apple's chipset. So uh, we'll see more proprietary things like the Afterburner card made just for the M series processor that it's going to run, maybe expandable storage and stuff that you can plug and play. Apple might be able to partner with some third parties to make some exclusive type connections, but I don't think this is going to be a Mac Pro like the one we have. And this might be the future of the Mac Pro. I mean, can you yeah. really say that we're going to need that gigantic uh, desk-sized PC in the future with the way that everything's just getting smaller and smaller? Even for professionals, if Apple's able to put their silicon in that larger package and provide the right expandability options, would we need that giant case? And it's just kind of questions about where we're going to be two years from now. It's very interesting to watch. Yeah, for sure. And it's also... It won't need the thermals that the larger Mac Pro has, which takes up a lot of room in the Mac Pro. And it's really the graphics card question of how Apple Silicon is going to deal with graphics cards because those really large open slots on the newer Mac Pro is for those large graphic cards like the Afterburner and, you know, like other Radeon cards you could stick in there. So, yeah, curious what it would look like to have a smaller modular Mac Pro for sure. And one of the other rumors was that the touch bar might be going away on MacBook Pros. And, you know, I've seen lots of different people on Twitter voicing their opinions on the touch bar. It's very divisive. You know, I feel like of all the Apple things that they've implemented, this the touch bar is very divisive. People have strong feelings. Some people have no feelings about it. For me, I would not be sad to see it go. I keep it in that control strip mode. And I've had more times recently than not, even on my new M1 MacBook Pro, where that touch bar just kind of like freezes and I have to wait a few seconds for it to turn on so I can adjust the brightness of my display. So I would not uh, be sad to see it go. I'm not sure how legit it would be that they're going to have it go away so soon after just releasing the M1 MacBook with a touch bar, but I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't mind it. It's a very strange product. I, I've had a couple of Macs, uh, MacBooks with the touch bar in it. I never you know, felt offended about it. I'm not a programmer. I, I didn't need the escape key. And then it came back and was like, okay, great. Th there it is. But the other function keys, it was neat having little system functions in a digital form. I was hoping that we'd see more upgrades like haptics and such. Uh, it never really happened. It's very neglected. And um, when Apple neglects something like this, either they completely trash it and give up or they come out and revamp it and say, you know, we all know that you love the touch bar, but here it is even better. And, you know, no one loves the touch bar. They're at least very passe about it. And if it disappears, I'm not going to be mad. I th I've always liked it as a function of uniqueness. Like you can look at a Mac, see that touch bar. It's just a very specific design and just the giant trackpad below. It just feels these last few years, it's a very MacBook-like design. And uh, sure. that's the only thing I would hate to see go is them moving back to just, here's a standard keyboard with standard keys. I'm, I'm hoping if it goes away, they replace it with something. Maybe that's where this is coming from. Maybe instead of the touch bar, we're getting more of a screen. Maybe it takes over some more of the keys. Who knows? Or it's just going to change entirely. I don't know. But yeah. it's a very strange rumor, like you said. I mean, these... The, it's debuted in what 2016 yep. so four years later it's uh very rare for apple to make something and abandon it so quickly so well i'm trying to think now that now that you just said that i'm trying to think of other things that something rare i mean it's not happening was, every day right. google releases an app every day and abandons it the next week but <laughs> you know when we're talking about apple for sure you know uh ping comes to mind or yeah it took a few years though but har hardware decisions like you know 
when they changed something, butterfly keyboard, I mean, that was just a debacle right. on its own, but yeah. they never went back to butterfly, did they? It's just... It's back to... We're on scissor switches. We're on scissor switches now, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Apple at least, like, commented on the keyboard situation throughout the past four years, like, from 2016 onward. You know, people like Joanna Stern were, like, beating the drum for those four years. But the touch bar, like, there's never been Apple's comments on, like, we know it frees us sometimes or we know people don't like. Like, no, like, they never have not said anything about the touch bar. They've also never said anything like... People love the touch bar. Like that's not been in any press releases or. I don't remember the last time they said the word touch bar on stage. Just saying. That is true. Yeah. Cause even with the M1 MacBook Pro announcement, that wasn't ever talked about. Also a refreshed iMac coming this year. I mean, that seems like an obvious new update. And then this rumor, the cheaper Apple made display. Of course, this rumor comes out right after I just bought an LG Ultrafine. Uh, which I would have waited for the Apple one if this was really a thing. But I'd be very interested in this. Would be curious what it would look like and how much it would cost. Obviously, there's a pretty high bar for it to cut under. You know, the Pro Display XDR is like five, $6,000, depending on whether you get a stand for it or not. So I would definitely be curious to see a cheaper Apple display, 4K, 5K, what sizes. And I'm sure many people would be in the market for one of those. Would you be interested in something like that to use with your iPad setup? Definitely. It's just too complicated these days to find something. I mean, I've, I've wrote a choose your best monitor kind of piece and uh, was just doing the research <laughs> and it's kind of crazy. There's not really that many Thunderbolt options that are within the realm of affordability. I mean, Apple's display isn't going to be that affordable. You know, we're talking probably twelve to $1,500 easily, but sure. at least when I spend that much money on an Apple product, I know what I'm getting. You know, if I yeah. go out here and buy the $1,200 LG Ultrafine and it, you know, turns off when my router's nearby, then there, there's an issue. <laughs> also, just to mention, side side mention, um, I thought of another technology. 3D Touch got removed very quickly after oh. being introduced. Uh, but anyway. Well, now, very quick. I mean, <laughs> 3D Touch was 6S mm-hmm. and it lasted 6S, 7, 8, 10. 10S, I believe. 10S. Yeah, so it lasted, it lasted four or five years. So it's about the same life cycle as a touch bar if the, the, if the touch bar goes mm. away. That is very true. That is very true. So we, we will have to see. Listeners, let us know. What do you think the over-under is <laughs> on the touch bar? <laughs> of all these rumors, that is uh, the most contentious, I think. People want to know what's going to happen. But a display would be... I, I want to see a display line, and I know it's never going to happen. Apple likes making one thing at a time, but just give us a couple of options. Give us something. Maybe you know, partner with LG again and just give us something. I would love to see Apple go all in on their iPad quote unquote pro and say, Hey, here's a pro iPad display we made specifically for the iPad. Make it touchable even because mm. the iPad has a touchable interface. I don't know. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Apple, you could take that and run with it. Uh, I think I'm sure Wes would like that. That'd be, that is a very interesting idea actually, especially with like Apple pencil style integration. This might be going too far, but I'm just saying like to have a larger screen where you could use it. I'm thinking of my podcast editing through ferrite. Uh, that would be uh, very interesting. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit here that Apple definitely is just ignoring completely. I, I just want to see something, anything. If they partner with LG, just make it look more like an Apple product and less like an LG product. That's my desire. That's all. Aluminum. Just use aluminum. There you go. This episode is sponsored by Masterclass. Guys, you've heard me talk about Masterclass before. It's an online learning platform where you can learn from the best and brightest in any industry at your convenience and on any device 
you choose. You can learn about cooking from Gordon Ramsay. You can learn about astronomy in space from Neil deGrasse Tyson or Chris Hadfield. You can even learn voice acting from Nancy Cartwright, art and creativity from Jeff Koons, and the science of better sleep from Matthew Walker. Let me tell you, I've done several of these classes and I love the ability to learn something new in this format. Each lesson is just about 10 to 15 minutes long and it's a beautifully produced video and you can watch it anywhere and on any device. You can do it on your iPhone, iPad, your Apple TV, or just on the web. And because each lesson is short and digestible, you can do it on a lunch break. And Masterclass even gives you additional resources where you can continue to learn after the video. One of my favorite features is if you do it on your iPhone and you're watching the video, if you jump in the car or you want to switch to audio only, you just switch a little tab and all of a sudden you're listening to that masterclass. One of the courses I still love is the Hans Zimmer where you can learn about music composition for movies. He talks about his process. You get to see his studio in the video. He talks about some of the movies that he's written for. I highly recommend that and the Chris Voss class because if you're a freelancer or you work with clients, Chris Voss was a lead FBI hostage negotiator and he takes those skills and teaches them to you so you could use them in the workplace and with clients and it is just an incredible course. I highly recommend Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And believe me, you're going to want to do multiple classes, so this is a great deal. And as an Apple Insider listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. So go to masterclass.com slash Apple Insider. That's masterclass.com slash Apple Insider for 15% off Masterclass. Our thanks to Masterclass for sponsoring this episode. All right, well, I wanted to touch on sideloading iOS and iPad apps onto an M1 MacBook. So there was a couple articles this week. I'll put a link in show notes. Once the M1 laptops and the Mac Mini launched, you were able to sideload iOS and iPhone apps, even if they weren't available in the App Store. Now, Apple advertised that developers could choose to put their iPhone and iPad apps in the Mac App Store, basically with just checking a box. And some developers chose to do that. But developers who chose not to put their iOS apps in the Mac App Store automatically, there is this way of sideloading. And I'll explain the process in a moment because I finally tried it. I hadn't done it yet since I've had this M1. And I just did it today as we record. And so I'll talk about that in a moment. But Apple blocked this ability recently this past week and then re-enabled it. And so now it looks like this unknown, like we don't know if Apple's going to continue to allow you to do this or if they're going to take away this ability. Obviously, you could use this for nefarious reasons, like an app that maybe charges for a Mac version and an iOS version. You could sideload that iOS version onto a Mac. It might not work just like you want it to, but you could probably do that and not pay for a Mac version. So those nefarious reasons, like don't do that, listeners. Don't don't cheat the system. I actually tried it today with the Disney Plus app because I was just curious. I just wanted to go through the process, see how easy it was, and see how those apps actually worked on a Mac. And so Disney Plus, you can download the iOS app, obviously, on iPhone and iPad, but they do not have a Mac app, and they did not make their iOS app available in the Mac App Store. If you remember the HBO Max deal. Like once the M1 Max came out, HBO made their app available. They said, yeah, you can just download our app now. But the app was like terrible and couldn't even do full screen. Like it just wasn't a good experience. But so I did it with the Disney Plus app today. And there's a couple methods. I'll put a link to the Apple Insider how-to article. If you would like to try this, if you have an M1 Mac and you want to try and do this, you can do it with the Apple Configurator app. 
I actually used an app called iMazing, like one letter I, Mazing. They've actually sponsored this podcast in the past, so it's a great app. I encourage you to check it out anyway. But using iMazing, I connected my iPhone to my M1 MacBook Pro Lightning to USB-C cable. You know, you do the trusting thing, and in the iMazing app, you can then go and look at your apps on the iPhone inside the iMazing app. There's like a manage apps command. And so I went to the manage apps command and then you could see uh, your Mac device or your iPhone library of apps. So I went to the iPhone library and then you can choose to download an app. So I chose to download the Disney Plus iPhone app to my computer. And once it's downloaded, basically from your phone, you can then export that iOS app as a .ipa file. Now, when you choose to download it on your Mac, it does have you authenticate with your iCloud account. And this is the step where Apple blocked it for a day or two this past week. So again, unknown if Apple is going to continue to block it or continue to allow it, but this is where you actually have to sign with your account. And so there is some server-side blocking that Apple could do. But once you download it through the iMazing app, you export that .ipa file. I exported it to my applications folder on my Mac. And once that IPA file is there, you double click it and it installed the Disney Plus app, iOS app on my M1 MacBook Pro. So if I go to my applications folder or if you go to the launch pad on my Mac, I actually have the Disney Plus app right there. It, it's just like any other Mac app I have. It's on the launch pad. It's also in the applications folder. And so when you open the app, it opens up in a window and it really functions just like the iOS app. And from the horror stories about the HBO Max app when that first came out, I was curious how it would function. But I actually find it functions very well. The Disney Plus app, I can resize the window. I can even hit the little green button to go full screen and I can watch whatever video inside Disney Plus full screen there. I can AirPlay to an Apple TV or other AirPlay device from inside the Disney Plus app while I'm watching. And one of the reasons you might want to do this with a streaming app like Disney Plus is if you can only do it in a web browser on a Mac, you can't download the movies for offline viewing. But doing this, doing it this way, installing the Disney Plus app here on my M1 MacBook, I actually get that option that you would get on an iPhone or iPad to download a movie and then it saves locally to my MacBook. And then if I was not going to have internet access, or if we were a time when we were flying, or if you're going to fly somewhere, you would have that movie saved right there in the Disney Plus app on your MacBook. And so overall, it was actually a good experience using an app like iMazing, very simple to do, uh, just takes a few steps. And this would work with, as long as Apple still allows it, any app on your iPhone that you want to put on your M1 MacBook, you could do it using this side loading method. So I just wanted to share that process and tell you if you wanted to try it, it is very simple. Again, use something like iMazing and it's you know super quick, super easy to do. Uh, but it, overall, interesting experience and it, it works. I got Disney Plus right here on my Mac. Yeah, the thing about these um, IPA files, you know, they're they're basically, as long as it's a universal app, it's been programmed for Apple TV, iPad, iPhone. It's got everything it needs to work on a Mac because iPad gives it the mouse support, uh, the universal abilities gives it window resizing and all of that. So as long as all the parts are there, they're going to run just fine. It's just these apps. The only thing that's missing is the checkbox that says it can be in the app store in the first place on the Mac. Right. There was some confusion I've seen online uh, surrounding this whole 
debacle. If you already have the apps extracted from iMazing or other resources on your Mac, you can still install them even if Apple pulls the plug, as long as they're already locally downloaded. But once Apple decides to pull the plug on this, it's a server-side change that um, basically revokes the certificates, makes it so that apps like iMazing and stuff can't pull these things down anymore. So just saying, if you want to do this, go ahead and get it over with, because once Apple <laughs> yeah. changes the server uh, side stuff, you're not going to be able to do it anymore. And this is only for side loading apps. This has nothing to do with the app store, legitimate apps that you can purchase. Some people are confused about that too. It's not the Mac app store. This is a completely left field thing. So, right. Yeah. Do it now. If you were, if you wanted to try it, now's your <laughs> opportunity and it won't for the record, like this app is not going to update anymore. So obviously, you know, when it's on your iPhone or iPad, whenever there's an app update, it'll get pushed out. If you do this method, as far as I understand, like it's not going to get any kind of software update. So yeah, this is frozen in time. Yeah, it's frozen in time. So eventually it will probably stop working, uh, you know, at probably long way out. Like you could probably keep the version for a long, long time, but you don't get those updates like you would if it was downloaded from the Mac app store like a legit app because yeah. the developer put it there. Well, I mentioned the server-side change uh, not messing up for now, but Apple could always push a Mac OS update that completely kills these things from working even after they're installed. So, you know, you, you just keep an eye on update logs and what people are saying online because if you've got a favorite app on there that you want to keep playing with and a Mac OS update comes out, you might kill the app. So just keep an eye on things. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to talk about AirPods Max because Wes, you're my, my fellow AirPods Max user and friend. And there's been a lot of tweets and articles going around about a condensation and then battery drain issues. And then there was the recent teardown from iFixit where they, they called it devastatingly over-engineered, which is a hilarious turn of phrase. I don't know why they described it as that. Maybe, I don't know, like it's really well-engineered, I guess. It's like a double negative. Yeah, like it, it's supposed to sound negative, but is a high compliment, I guess. So anyway, the first thing I want to talk about is this condensation thing. And I've seen pictures on Twitter over and over again. People spraying their headphones with water hoses and <laughs> running them I under sinks. I don't know what they're doing. It's, I mean, people are saying that even after using it for just like an hour or two hours, they take off the magnetic foam ear cup, like not anything funny, like the thing that you can just do, just removing the ear cup that attaches magnetically. And there's like water inside. And this is not just like a drop of water. This is like multiple drops of water inside the ear cup. And there's several people saying that they're experiencing this. And I've checked multiple times. I wore them for like three hours yesterday and... I didn't like try to sweat particularly, but I was just sitting there. I was watching stuff and working, listening to music. I took the headphones off, took off the ear cup. I saw no condensation. And I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine this is like a model to model manufacturing difference about some would collect condensation and not others. I also don't know if it's like a perspiration thing between people. I don't know. What do you think about this condensation stuff? You're the guy to test this, all right? You're in Florida, so um, yeah, my humidity. You open the yeah. door and and the the floodwaters just come in, right? So <laughs> you could w probably walk outside, and if your headphones aren't full of water, then you're probably fine. But I've not seen any issues. I mean, I'm in Tennessee in the mountains. The humidity is hit and miss. It's it's been winter, but we've had our 70 degree days just like everyone. I've not 
seen any water, you know, just those photos, some of them are crazy. And it reminds me like, and I'm not saying anyone's lying about anything, but it just reminds me a little bit of the Xbox series X images going around of people saying, look, you can put a ping pong ball above the fan and it floats in midair. And it, it, it was a bunch of nonsense. People were tying strings around the ping pong ball, but people believed it. And it's just like, this is just another one of those things. All we have is images and anyone I've spoken to with AirPods max, not seeing this issue. And I'm not saying it's not an issue. It's just, it's such a strange thing. Like they're wearing this in a sauna. I'm, I'm not sure how water is getting in, in that kind of detail, like heavy amounts. I don't know. I'll put a link in show notes to this Forbes article, but some of these pictures, like the entire inside there's like water droplets around the entire ring of the inside of the AirPods Max. Like this is not a couple drops. Like and and, and like there's a couple of parts where it's like pooling. Like the water is pooling together. I don't understand what's happening there. It's a, it's definitely a viral thing, something to keep an eye on. And I mean, if you have AirPods Max, just make sure you're not wearing it in your bathtub. Otherwise, I I, I it's very much a non-issue, probably as much as bending iPads were. But uh, we'll see how this goes. Oh yeah. Even the six, uh, I think it was the six or six S, you know, the plus version. The six plus. That was Bend Gate. Mm. Yeah, the six plus. That was all the Bend Gate. Like, oh man, you could bend. I mean, listen, you <laughs> apply enough pressure to anything and it will bend. And just a spoiler alert there. You apply enough sweat to anything, it'll fill up with water, you know? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I've been checking them regularly. I, I haven't seen it. Listeners, I would love to know. Listener, if you have a pair of AirPods Max and you're getting this condensation, tweet a picture of me. I, w- I would love to see it. But that's, I've not had that issue. But I will say I have had other issues with the AirPods Max. There's been some users saying that the batteries are like draining overnight and uh, like it looks like it's not going to that sleep mode, whether they're using the sleeve or not. I have not experienced the battery drain specifically, but I have experienced a non connectivity problem when I first take them out of the case. I've been using that Waterfield case that, that I reviewed and it's I've seen them all over the internet now. But when I take them out, sometimes they connect right to whatever device I'm using, whether it's an iPad or my Mac, and they just show up. Sometimes they don't show up right away and I have to either click the digital crown or the other button to kind of like wake them up. And then sometimes, even if I wait several minutes, they don't connect, like they don't show up even in the Bluetooth menu of my Mac, or I, you know, if I go to the Bluetooth settings on my iPad and tap the AirPods Max, it doesn't connect. So I'm not sure what that is. A lot of times what I have to do is actually plug in a lightning cable to like charge it for a second, and then I'll see it has 60, 70% battery. So it's not a dead battery issue, but for some reason it's not like waking up or something without me kind of like giving it a little juice or or can even just connecting the headphone to lightning cable that I use that I'm using right now. So it's not all the time, but I do see that intermittently not connecting. Have you seen anything like that? I, I really haven't. I've had issues with my AirPods Pro and everyone's pointing the finger at the auto switching feature. And I think that's definitely the culprit. It's hard to say exactly what's happening here, but sometimes but AirPods Pro specifically, I'll put my Air- AirPod in here, the ding, and then the device I'm holding in my hand, go to control center, I see nothing for moments and then it pops in and then I click on it and suddenly it's no longer AirPods Pro with the AirPod image, it's AirPods Pro with a Bluetooth image and then there's two of them identical right next to each other. Right. And then for a second, 
And then it switches over to the quote unquote Bluetooth AirPods Pro. And then no sound comes out of my phone. And then the only way to fix that is to put them back in the case, pull them back out. And then bam, auto switches just fine. The AirPods Max, I believe, are probably experiencing similar issues. People point back to a update that happened earlier in January um, that might have been for auto switching and stuff that could have enabled this. From what I've read um, and what we wrote uh, in an article is the best way to stop this and the other issues we're going to discuss, uh, like battery drain, is just to do a simple um, re- reset and restore because you know it's not technology until you turn it off and turn it back on again to fix a problem <laughs> it's so true and so annoying that that fixes so many things but yeah and the article i'll put a link to the article in show notes too but you basically hold the digital crown and the transparency noise canceling button hold it down until they factory reset basically and what is it is it a light Yeah. So when you hold it down for a couple of seconds, the orange light will appear indicating that the power has recycled. Basically it's restarted. If you keep holding them down, it'll show white and it will indicate a factory reset. All that really means is that you've erased your iCloud um, information from the phone or from the uh, AirPods max. That's it. And then you just repair it like you did the first time you purchased it. It's not going to restore it to like uh, a, a previous update or anything like that. So it's a very, very simple process Apparently this fixes it. I haven't been running into these issues on the Mac, so I haven't been able to see if this fixes my issue. Maybe you can, Steven, see if your problems go away. But as usual, turning it off and on again just fixes the problem. <laughs> yeah, I will try that. This episode is brought to you by Ladder Life Insurance. For a long time, I didn't understand life insurance or why I would need it. But now that I have three kids, a wife and a family, and me being the sole breadwinner of the family, I realize it is so important to have good life insurance in case anything happens so that you know your family and kids can be taken care of. Knowing that my family still has a mortgage and my kids one day will hopefully go to college, I want to make sure that even if I'm not around, that their needs are going to be met and so they don't have a huge financial burden if something happens to me. That's why it makes so much sense to get good life insurance, especially term coverage, which is surprisingly affordable. Why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, then choose Ladder. Ladder makes it impressively fast and easy to get covered. In just a few minutes, you can do it on a phone or your laptop. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, and you can find out if you're instantly approved. There's no hidden fees, and you can cancel at any time. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. So I highly recommend you check out Ladder today. That's L-A-D-D-E-R to see if you are instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com slash Apple Insider. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash Apple Insider. Ladderlife.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Ladder for sponsoring this episode. And this is kind of just an ongoing Bluetooth issue among several devices that I have now. And so it's hard to diagnose exactly what it is, but kind of transitioning into my desktop setup update, you know, I've found that the Bluetooth issues are persisting. You know, Apple said they're going to release a fix for Bluetooth issues on the M1 Mac. But again, I don't know if this is a Bluetooth issue because a lot of times when I experience the connection issue with my AirPods Max is because I'm trying to connect it to my M1 MacBook Pro. And it's either not showing up in the Bluetooth or whatever. And even today, I, I was at the desk and I tried putting my M1 MacBook Pro into the vertical bridge dock and my mouse, like it just would not connect for anything. I turn it off and on. 
I took it out of the dock, opened up the laptop. I eventually had to restart the computer and mess around and actually repair the mouse in order to have it connect. So the setup that I just got and was very excited about, the Bluetooth issues are really making a headache. And I really hope Apple releases that fix soon. But this might be, you know, also affecting the AirPods Max and Pro and, and other devices as well. So to please fix the Bluetooth Apple. That's all I'm saying. And I know you had actually wanted to hear about the bridge vertical dock. And I mentioned it last week, but I'll just say, you know, aside from the Bluetooth issues and whatever else is going on with the wireless devices, the bridge vertical dock, I'm still very happy with it. Not as, you know, airtight as I was thinking it would be around the Mac, but I've never had an issue dropping it in that thing. There is a click when you actually push it far enough so those two USB-C ports connect to your MacBook. Uh, but it's been working well with the LG UltraFine and any device that's physically connected to the dock uh, works great. Connected my Keychron K3 keyboard directly, so I don't have to worry about Bluetooth, and that works no problem every time. So been enjoying that. But do you have any a questions about the setup still, or have you changed your setup at all? Because I know you were looking at some new accessories that came out recently. Well, the bridge dock sounds cool. I mean, again, if they if there was something like that for the iPad, I would probably get it. Which, funny enough, uh, the Kensington dock announced. Uh, did we we discuss that right? Yeah, but it does look pretty sweet. I mean, are you going to be getting one of those? It definitely looks very cool. I don't know if I'll use it at my desk, but um, it'll definitely make for a cool hub for somewhere else in my house. Maybe a table I'm not using in another room. But th- things like that are definitely really nice because uh, just like the bridge dock, it's just you slap your computer into it, hook up one cable, and there you go. And that's how I have my desk set up, but it's much more complicated than a singular dock you slide something into. So for sure, I've been working on my desk, uh, last couple of weeks. Um, mostly just rewiring. I bought a bunch of cable straps and, uh, spent four hours on a Sunday last week, um, rewiring the entirety of my desk, which was very entertaining, but <laughs> mostly because I got this new microphone and, uh, the mic boom and everything, the wires are all now repositioned and running to the hyperdrive, uh, that I use. So that's, that's been nice. But yeah, the one other thing that I got was, uh, Seitechi, um, one of my favorite accessory makers, uh, released another iPad stand. I've owned a couple of their previous little stands. It's just a fold up a uh, piece of aluminum that holds your iPad up in the air. This one's, um, more of an arm with a uh, neck like that holds your iPad much higher in the air. And this is as soon as I saw it and it would be perfect for my desk cause it gets the iPad much higher off the ground. And my trackpad kind of sits underneath where the iPad sits anyway. So all the space I can get there is very handy. And this brings it up to you know, where if I'm going to sketch or edit a photo, it's a little bit more of a reasonable height as well. And there's no wobble Hmm. and uh, I can rest my hand on the iPad and not have it like fall down or anything. So it's, it's definitely a very sturdy stand and we can include a link in that in the show notes. Is that the R1 aluminum hinge? So here's the fun part. The one part of my, of my desk setup that is not wired is the Keychron because I have it plugged in for charging purposes, Mm -hmm. but because I like using the Bluetooth switching, it is in Bluetooth mode. So if I'm not touching the keyboard for a while, it goes to sleep (laughs) and there's that always that moment where you hit a key and it's like, Oh wait, I have to wait a moment and let it wake up. Yeah. That's why I like having the key crons connected directly. But yeah, if you're using the Bluetooth switching, which is awesome when it, you know, if you have multiple devices like that, uh, it's convenient. So the old one is the R1 aluminum hinge. The new one is the aluminum desktop stand. Okay. It's a different um, thing entirely. They kind of snuck this into the press release when they released the new keyboards 
X1 keyboards they released uh, during CES. Mm. This was just at the bottom of a press release, but yeah, I, I saw it and jumped on it right away. Very, very sleek, very nice. And I uh, tweeted about it when I got it, and uh, you can see some pictures of it on my desk if you go on my Twitter. Cool. Well, also talking about kind of setup updates, this is a extremely trivial thing, but there's sometimes where I'm a sucker for marketing and anchor, which is a company I've bought many things from. They make docks and hubs, cables, all the kind of stuff, chargers and power, like batteries, portable batteries, things like that. But they advertise, I saw this, I think on Instagram, it was in my stories, but it was an ad for their new cable line, which is the power line three flow. And I had never seen a cable advertised and marketed like this one was and uh, there are, there's a link in show notes to like the landing page for these cables but anchor is advertising it as a like, super strong and surprisingly soft and they come in these interesting colors like you don't usually see lightning cables like this but they say you know no more tangles it feels great it's super strong like can support 220 pounds and it's a usb-c to lightning cable which i don't need too often but I do need it often. I used it with iMazing uh, when I was doing the whole side loading of the apps. And so I got one of these because I just had to know what it was really like. And I got it a couple of days ago. And I will say, kudos to Anchor. This is actually a very nice cable. <laughs> this sounds so silly to actually like brag on or whatever, but I have to give them kudos because uh, it looks great. It is super strong. It doesn't tangle as easily as other cables. It is definitely thicker. Uh, especially for a lightning cable. Usually lightning cables end up on the thin side, but I really like it for USB-C to lightning cable. And I don't know if they're making USB-C to USB-C versions of this style cable yet, but I will definitely get some if they uh, release it. So anyway, if you're in the market for a USB-C to lightning cable, let me just recommend. It's a little pricey for a cable, but it's also really nice. So I just wanted to share that with you. Yeah, the way I see it, if uh, you want quality, you need to be spending at least $20 on a cable. And I know that sounds <laughs> dumb, but like those yeah. $5 gas station things will set your home on fire. Like, it's, Yes, do not. Yeah. You, do not do it. You want you want some quality. And um, if you've ever been, we, I've always make fun of it because it's just, it's true, uh, too true. But um, that person that lays down with the cable underneath their leaning on their chest and just completely destroying that cable yeah, uh, yeah. i want to do the the i guess the chest test with the uh anchor these these guys that you've looked at because uh, <laughs> the thickness of the cable might prevent that from happening but i guess enough force will do it but it's good to have good cables um my favorites that i my go-to are um my god i think i buy everything from this company but Satechi has really nice uh braided cables <laughs> and um they have a 100 watt like USB-C cable i use for connecting my ipad to things and they have a couple of good lightning cables uh like official licensed lightning cables and stuff so i would definitely check them out too but anchor you know you can't really go wrong with those guys too yeah, and I will say one other link I'll put is Monoprice. They make some really good cables too. I've gotten some USB-C cables from them. The nice like braided and like Kevlar cables. So if you're in the market for cables, this was the episode for you. You should check out the links in show notes. And one last setup question. I'm going to ask the listeners again for their help. So as I'm looking to do more video and I have my new desk set up, I am looking for a good storage solution. And I know the whole Synology world is out there. And, you know, one day I think I would like to get a Synology, like the whole big six bay with tons of storage and redundancy and all that. But I wasn't really ready to go that level just yet. I really just wanted a Thunderbolt external storage, six terabytes or more that I could just have at the desk and use to 
save video and edit off of. So G technology has their line of external drives. And so I was looking at their six terabyte Thunderbolt three, like desktop storage. And I have like portable drives all over the place. I have like terabyte SSD Samsung drives, but I really wanted like the six, 10 terabyte or more desktop space. Again, not as concerned with redundancy right now. Didn't want to go the whole Synology route. So if any of you listeners know of kind of like a mid-range option between a $100 external portable hard drive and like the $1,500 Synologies, I'd love to know what that middle range looks like. If it's the LaCie or G-Technology stuff, that's great. I know OWC makes a couple things too, but let me know, listeners. I would love to have some guidance in this area from you all. Want to know what I use and I'll tell you not to buy? <laughs> Please, I'd love to hear. So my Mac Mini, which is um, sitting on a wooden shelf in my living room, has metal brackets holding the shelf in. Okay, so just get this mental <laughs> picture in your head. <laughs> and then I have a Seagate expansion drive, 10 terabytes from lovely old Amazon for $200. Right. If that doesn't tell you anything, then... Um, it is a plastic enclosure uh, with a spinning disk drive, right? Uh, sure. It sits on one of the metal arms. <laughs> oh, my I, goodness. I, I need to move it. I really do. But I'm, I've just been – the wires are hard, like, nailed into the wall. So, it requ- it's going to be a job. But it sits on top of this metal part of the shelf. And every time it does anything, I, the entire house can hear it, I swear. <laughs> Just yep. the, the, if you've ever heard a hard drive knock, just think of the knocking sound, knock, 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 knock while it's spinning up and doing stuff. And it's very loud. And I, I know if, no matter where I move it, it's, it's going to be loud and I can't like wrap it in fabric cause it'll catch on fire. So I'm not really sure <laughs> um, what to do with this thing, but Hey, it's 10 terabytes. So I, I don't complain too much. Uh, it gets the job done, I guess. Yeah. And I've had like a ton of those like Western digital and Seagate's plastic, my book or, you know, Seagate drives or whatever. And not interested in those, you know, I don't want a USB, a don't external. Yeah. To plastic. I don't want any of that. So none of those recommendations, please. But something like Thunderbolt three, you know, maybe USB C 3.1, 3.2, something like that. But anyway, I'll leave it open. Listeners, let me know what you use. And also wanted to point out this article, Apple did its shot on iPhone 12, showing off some of the users and and photos like that. I know you tweet photos every once in a while of your iPhone 12 Pro Max photos, and they all look amazing. And so do these photos, too. I mean, it's just pretty incredible what the 12, 12 Pro, 12 Pro Max can do. So I'll put the link to, to that in show notes, and I'll put one of Wes's pictures as the chapter art because... It does look amazing. Did you take that mountain range picture too? What is that? Yeah, that's uh, that's in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Yeah, it looks amazing. I will say I haven't done like go out and be a photographer with my phone recently, but I went camping recently with the family and the night shots that the 12 Pro got were pretty great. You know, the only light is basically a campfire and holding it for three to five seconds or even just taking a picture of the fire directly, even video content of like a fire, roasting stuff over a fire, it looks great. And so just awesome photo quality I'm getting from 12 Pro. Yeah, I always see these um, shot on iPhone campaigns, and there's a reason why these photos were chosen. They're just absolutely amazing. It's definitely going to be mostly like 80%. The photographer just knows what they're doing, and they probably have a little bit of editing software or maybe a lens helping them out. But I wouldn't be completely discouraged because... 
I've definitely come close to some of these types of images before. I mean, obviously, if you're in Dubai, any any photo you take is just going to be absolutely stunning. But I would say if you ever want to just get into this stuff, uh, Apple actually, pre-pandemic, did a lot of like photo walkthroughs and stuff of how to take proper images on an iPhone. And anything I tell anyone when it comes to photography is just read for five minutes. And that's more than most people have ever done for learning how to do photography and just learn how to frame a shot you know, rule of thirds and you'll be so far ahead of anyone else and your Instagram will look amazing. But, um, <laughs> it's just looking at these images that people take. It's, it's wild. The composition, the color, the lighting It the iPhone, a lot of times just out of the lens, no buttons touch, not even in raw format. It's crazy to see like the dynamic range and stuff that the sensor is pulling out of just what's in front of me. So I definitely can't wait for things to be a little less uh, icky outside so I can go and do a lot more photo projects. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me round out the show just with a couple listener feedback and follow-up points. Number one, we talked about Wi-Fi routers briefly last episode with William, and I mentioned the Netgear Orbi mesh Wi-Fi network. I've heard mixed reviews on this, but a listener, Damien, actually emailed me, and he said that he tried the Orbi mesh network, and he did not have a good experience at all. So listeners, if you're looking for mesh Wi-Fi networks, again, take that as you make your decision. Again, I personally use the Linksys Velop. Wes, you use the Linksys Velop also, right? Yes, I, I do. Have you been happy with it? I'm, I'm pretty happy. I have some weird issues. I have a big air gap uh, in between a couple of my routers. So if you know, radio signals work better when they're indoors. And uh, trying to get a router to talk to each other, even if it's only 10 feet of outdoors, uh, radio signals tend to launch themselves to space rather than across a yard. So <laughs> I've been having some interesting issues and might have to run a wire here or there. But as far as... Inside the house, everything has been perfect. I never have an issue out of this. And uh, still waiting on some HomeKit upgrades for my system. But, you know, who knows? 2022, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> Same here, waiting for HomeKit to come. But so, listeners, if you're looking for I still I stand by the Lynx's Velop. I think, you know, if you're looking for mesh networks and you can spring for one of those Velop nodes and mesh networks, I would, I would recommend those. And then finally, I mentioned last week about using my M1 MacBook Pro in clamshell mode and not having access to the Touch ID and not sure what Apple Watch can use to authenticate what apps. Then I mentioned 1Password and Kevin Epstein actually tweeted at me and then 1Password tweeted again and I was wrong on that. You can actually use your Apple Watch to unlock 1Password when the MacBook Pro is closed and you don't have access to Touch ID. So when you have your MacBook open, you can use Touch ID to unlock 1Password but if it's closed in clamshell mode, you actually do get a little notification on your Apple Watch. And I tried it several times. It works great. You flip open the Apple Watch, double click that side button like you would for Apple Pay, and it unlocks 1Password just like Touch ID. So kudos to 1Password. Again, I, I use it so much for everything, but you can use your Apple Watch to authenticate things like that in third-party apps instead of Touch ID when your MacBook is closed. So that's pretty cool. Random question, speaking of authentication, Pre-Touch ID days on the Mac, um, did you ever use those third-party apps like Mac ID to set up like knocking systems and stuff to unlock your Mac? Do you know what I'm talking about? I Maybe, but no. I never tried third-party stuff like that. Vaguely remember um, having, I think it was, it was Mac ID or something, where you could use your phone to unlock your Mac. This is, I think... Apple Watch was out barely and it would uh, ping your phone or ping your Apple Watch and then you could like authenticate from there. 
and this is before Apple had that whole system set up. So it's just kind of funny that you mentioned that. It happened to make me think. But there was one where you could set up a pattern of knocks on your phone to uh, to unlock your, your Mac. It was weird. But anyway. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, I didn't, uh, didn't do that. Apple Watch works great. So that's cool. Well, anyway, listeners, tweet at Wes and myself all the stuff that we talked about in today's episode, your video storage and desktop storage solutions, any setup stuff that you have if you tried that side loading if you have condensation in your airpods max we would love to see all of it our twitter handles are in show notes you can also email me that link is in show notes as well if you haven't done it yet we would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review that'll help us out in the technology listings don't forget to check out HomeKit insider that gets released every monday this monday we actually did a special like shortcut automation 101 setting up triggers for your shortcuts so you should check that out and also Apple Insider Daily. You can get all the Apple headlines in just a few minutes on the Apple Insider Daily podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.